Martin Luther posted his 95 theses or propositions on the castle door in Wittenberg. And from that time, uh, the Christianity was in the West was expressed as one church, the Roman Catholic Church. And since that time, since that spark, so to speak, uh, the Christian church was unleashed with God's truth that has benefited both Protestants and Roman Catholics. I think the, the Reformation's been good for both. So I know that many of you have a Roman Catholic background, uh, or, or maybe uh, you currently are Roman Catholic. And I want you to know now I'm not here to uh, bash that movement. In fact, since Vatican II in the early 1960s, it's, there's been some amazing things happen in the Roman Catholic Church. The Spirit of God is moving there uh, in some parts of it. Um, the current Pope we have, I was very pleased when he was chosen as Pope because I think that uh, his conservative values and his humility so that, that we see is helpful to just um, the globe. It's helpful to when, when a couple of billion people or at least a billion people follow his advice. But having said all that, uh, we are a Protestant church and what happened 500 years ago has huge implications to how we live out our faith. And, and I'm proud that we're a Protestant church and I'm happy for the influence of Luther and the other reformers. And what I want to do today, I don't want this to be a history lesson, even though I could easily flow that way because I love history. I want this to be um, a, an examination of scriptures that enlivens your personal faith in us as a community. Because over the next nine days or so, you may hear different kind of academic analysis of our historical analysis of the Reformation, but I want you to see through Scripture why this was a really important event and how God used it. I think it's important that we realize here that what Luther did on October 31st, 1517 was just a spark. The conditions for the Reformation had, had been created for many, many years, 150 years approximately, especially through John Wycliffe and John Huss. John Wy Wycliffe is from England, John Huss is from Bo Bo Bohemia, he was a Czech, and I, I just want you to know those names, John Wycliffe, John Huff, in, in many ways those, those two men started the Reformation. So Luther took their teachings and he began to, to see much corruption in the church and some issues we're going to talk about today, and he wanted to reform the church, that's why it's called the Reformation. He wanted the church to change, he wanted the church to align with more biblical truth. And when that did not happen, since that time, the church has been splitting and splitting and splitting and splitting. Um, no one really knows how many denominations there are today. I mean, what is a denomination, right? I, I meet a couple of my pastor friends for coffee, and we said, hey, we're a network here. We're a denomination. <laughs> Just what the world needs is another denomination. So we don't know for sure how many there are. Some estimates at Gordon-Conwell, they've estimated 33,000 denominations. All right, so that's a lot of different groups. And, and simply, if we align, let's say, there's two non-denominational churches here in town that we're very close to, Community Church and God Why, and we're, we're really involved in each other's lives. So the three, our three churches could form a denomination this week. That's just, we're, we're not going to, so don't start a rumor. <laughs> but but the, the point is, is that ever since the Reformation, the church has been splitting, splitting, splitting. And that used to bother me. That used to bother me. I used to think, man, this is a bad thing. Then I heard theologian Wayne Grudem's 
perspective on this, and, and I think this is a good perspective. His theory is that God has allowed the church to, continue, to, to continually decentralize because if, if we have centralized power, that's too dangerous. It's too dangerous for all the power to be centralized in one entity or one man. And, and I think that's a good point. Instead of saying, oh, man, the church was so messed up because we keep, we keep splitting off. If you begin to see trends, even in the book of Acts, is that the work of the Lord split off. And sometimes for good reasons. And sometimes God used um, differences of opinion to spread his word. So I, I don't think we need to, to be overly agitated that the church continues to, um, to somewhat split. I think we're united around central truths. And that's why I myself call my Catholic brothers and sisters, if they have a relationship with Christ, we're in the same family. Doesn't mean I agree with everything, but I don't really agree with anybody except myself. Right? Have you ever found someone you agreed with completely? And those of you who are married, you understand that too. You don't even agree with your spouse, and the Bible says you're one. You can't even pick a restaurant together. All right? So it's work to be one. And so we, we, we kind of have that perspective. Let me, let me just tell you a few things that I believe the Reformation emphasizes. I want to emphasize to you. Here's the first thing. Salvation through faith, not works. I think this is really important if you're taking notes. This is really important to understand because a lot of Protestant denominations have kind of forgotten this point. Uh, Luther and Huss and Wycliffe begin to say, begin to see from Scripture that salvation doesn't come from something we do or how we earn it. Salvation comes from God's undeserved grace. And God reaches out. He chooses us. His Holy Spirit prepares our heart for, our, for salvation. And we receive salvation. We respond to His love. And that creates in us great, great humility. Now, being afraid of hell is really effective for behavior modification. Right? I mean, it really work, it works, man. If you say, if you do that, you go to hell. I mean, any logical person doesn't want to do that. And, I mean, I would even argue, I mean, having worked with teenagers, man, I'm almost like, don't be biblically, biblically accurate with teenagers. Just scare them and get them right until they can figure out really what salvation is. Now, that's not true. We don't believe that. But the thought crossed my mind a whole lot as a youth pastor for 10 years. When I was a little kid, my dad, for a few years, worked the night shift. And so we would play during the day, and he would be sleeping. And I remember being out in the front yard, and um, I somehow ran across a cuss word. And I decided to experiment that as I was expanding my language. Okay, so I used that cuss word, and about... 60 seconds later, the door opens up, and I hear this man say, what did you just say? And I'm going to tell you, in that moment, fear, conviction, remorse, eternal damnation came over my soul. All in one instance. I was scared of hell because I had used the word hell. I guess that was a confession just then, wasn't it? So, as a good dad, he did what good dads did to try to make sure my behavior was modificated appropriately. And I grew up in a good church and had great parents and all that, but still just picking up stuff from culture. It was, especially in the 1980s 
in the worlds that I, the world that I was in. It's just, you know, we, we were all really worried about going to hell. And then a great hobby Christians had back then is determining who else was going to hell. We love to say that one's going, that one's going, that one's going, that's one going. Well, guys, can I just tell you that I'm out of the business of determining who goes to hell. I just want to point people to Jesus, right? And I'm going to leave that up to him. I'm going to leave that up to him. But as my faith matured, and I began to study scripture and, and hear and understand good teaching, I heard it as a child, but I began to comprehend it. I realized that a work-based salvation, even though it's effective in getting people to do what we want them to do, it's not centered on Jesus and what he did on the cross. So here, here's the deal. If no work determined my salvation, then no work will cause me to be unsaved. All right? if, if no work determined my salvation, then how could any work determine me to be unsaved? So we're, we're just trusting Christ completely for our salvation. Now, there is a great argument, and I won't argument with, argue with this, that if a Christian never shows fruit, if a Christian never shows spiritual fruit, and they have time on this earth, I'm not talking about a deathbed confession, but they never show any fruit, did they ever really experience God's grace? Well, I think it's a strong argument to say, no, they have not. So God clearly says in his word, if you're my children, if you're my people, I expect you to bear fruit. I expect great things to happen in your life. And so that kind of maybe comforts us. Some of us are like, whoa, what's going on here? You know, yeah, guys, we know this. We're called the holiness. We're called the righteousness. But holiness and righteousness from ourselves doesn't save us. We reflect holiness. We reflect righteousness. When Jesus gives that to us, we're able to reflect it back to him. And, and, and I'm talking about this point here because this is the heart of the Reformation. Because the, the one scripture that really really um, changed Luther was, was a scripture that's not necessarily a spectacular one to most of us. It's out of Romans chapter 1, verse 17. But this is, this is what changed everything for Luther. For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Other translations, the New King James Version says, the just shall live by faith. So those who are justified, those who are right with God, those who are righteous, it's because of faith. It's not because they've earned it. It's not because they volunteer at the church. It's not because they tithe. It's not because they witness. Those things do not earn you salvation. The only thing that earns you salvation is faith in who Jesus is. That's it. And guys, we're really uncomfortable with that. Because we live in a competitive society, which is all about uh, cause and effect. And I earn stuff. And we really say, yeah, Jesus paid it all, but Jesus, I, I paid quite a bit myself too. <laughs> so what we, in many faith systems, we've developed what is known as eternal insecurity. Eternal insecurity means people are so worried about whether they're in heaven or hell that they're not actually living a love relationship with Christ because they're so tied up in works. They're so tied up in, in just behavior. And then the intentions behind the behavior never really gets there. And Jesus wants us to have freedom to say that he paid it all. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We have salvation in heaven. We're adopted. We have the Lord's name. We are who God says we are. And so now, by his grace, we're going to live out who we are. This is the truth. 
So it is if I continue with God's help and grace on this trajectory and I pastor my, my whole career and I, I do good and I, I, I grow in prayer and I grow in devotion and I grow in all the good things that happen and, and I, I, I have a strong family and, and I die. That, that's my hope, kind of this, this, this progressive sanctification. Now, here's the truth. If you, you think of the, the worst person you know, or the worst person you think you know, if that person trusts Jesus right before he or she dies, they have every rich, they have all the richness of heaven that someone who lived for Jesus all their life has also. That's not fair. Man, that's the wrong perspective. Because if we, if we really realize that without Jesus, we're nothing. Without Jesus, I can't be a father. Without Jesus, I can't be a husband. Without Jesus, I can't be a good citizen. I can't be a good preacher. I mean, we're, I mean do we really believe what we sing? Right? Jesus paid it all, amazing grace, it saved a wretch like me. Or do we think, man, we're pretty good, and so God's lucky that we're saved. You know, back in the whole youth group days, we're always preaching to the, the last row. Because in youth group, you know, people in rebellion sit on the last row. Here uh, in, in church, all you people who get here early sit on the back row. You got to come early for the back row. So you, it's just a reverse, you know. So and, and anyone who wants to sit towards the front, you are called of God to do that. It just helps the worship team. It helps me, all that stuff. But, but we're always preaching to the back row. Come on, come down, get saved, get saved. And we all of a sudden... Uh, People think they're doing God a favor when they walk the aisle or raise the hand or fill out the card. That's the wrong perspective. Our God has given us undeserved favor. It's called his grace. And it's sole fides. That's what Luther, he read. And, of course, this was one of the problems back then. Not many people could read the scripture, only the elite, only the few. He read Romans 1.17, and he said, sole fides, which means grace alone, faith alone, excuse me. It's only faith by which we're saved. Luther wrote this. I forgot to put this on the screen, so I have to listen good. About Romans 1.17, he wrote, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and this statement, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped the justice of God is righteousness by which, by which grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Now listen to this part. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn have gone through an open door into paradise. This was a huge paradigm shift. That salvation wasn't just a national. You weren't saved because you're a German or you're Italian. You're saved because God changed your heart. You're saved because grace called you. You're saved not because of what you do, but because of who you are and what you realize when you realize who you are. So let me ask you this question. Who determines what truth is for you? Or what determines what truth is? Does Mayor Jamie Clary determine truth for us? I like Jamie, so that's not a dig. But does he, does he, does he determine what is truth for those who live in Hendersonville? Does the governor determine what is truth? I'm not going to the next category because it just causes angst all over the place. How about philosophers? And professors at our flagship university in Knoxville, do they determine what the truth is? Is truth determined by instinct or feeling? 
Who determines if something is morally wrong? Let me ask you this question. For a lot of you, I'm your pastor. Do I determine what is right or wrong for you? Right? You're under, you're under my spiritual authority. And are, are you counting on me to determine what's right or wrong? Because I could, do, I, I could make some determinations for your life. For example, thus saith the Lord thy God, as I've been in prayer, as I've been analyzing culture, as I've been seeking the Lord, I, I want to declare that flip-flops are not of God. All right, well, so some agree, some don't. Some agree, some don't. Listen, guys, flip-flops are dangerous. They are. I mean, listen, people are wearing flip-flops in New York City and downtown Nashville. You can cut your foot, all right? You can't move very fast in flip-flops. One, one of our staff members, I won't tell you who he is, but he's a... He's the youth administrator. When we try to move tables, have you ever tried to move tables backwards and flip-flops? You can't do it. I mean, you're not ready. Flip-flops were meant for the ocean, like to get you from your car to the beach towel. That's what flip-flops are made. Or they were, they were made for pedicures. But now flip-flops have advanced. My mom has some flip-flops that it looks like the crown jewels of England are on these flip-flops. I mean, they glimmer from like miles away. I mean, flip-flops are just, like, incredible, you know? And everybody in my family likes flip-flops. You know, we're on vacation. I'm like, don't bring flip-flops. Bring tennis shoes. We got places to go, you know? But everybody's talking like this, moving like this. So as your pastor, as God's man, the Dr. Aaron Allison is declaring that flip-flops are of the devil, and you should not use them. Now, my own family would not submit to that, Okay? I'm using hyperbole for a reason. This is the danger when our authority comes from man. When our authority comes from a single entity. When our authority comes from a single person. Here's the second observation of why the Reformation is important. Because of the authority of Scripture. And parenthetically, that means it's not the Pope. Our authority doesn't come through tradition or a single person. It comes from the Scripture. Because if not then truth changes from person to person, from opinion to opinion, from perspective to perspective, from cultural trend to cultural trend. Martin Luther said these words, a council may sometimes err. Neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from Scripture. This is what the Reformation was built on. That's why here, as, as we, we use this symbolic table of the Lord that symbolizes our liturgical stream, we have the Word of God. This is a, quite an old Bible. It's just kind of fun to use that from the 1800s. We have the Word of God right here with the cross, with the sacraments, as, as a centerpiece of our church, as a symbolic reminder, as a physical reminder. Authority doesn't come from the preacher. It comes from the Scripture. So, guys... Test my, what I preach. Don't trust me blindly. Right? Look into the scripture. And, and there are many, many things that we accept that don't have scriptural basis. And we, 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 that should not be. We, we, should, we should struggle. We should look to the text. Because that authority transcends personality. It transcends trends. It, it, that authority is bigger than cultural whims. And it's bigger than our opinions. So we, we have, uh, 
for its good and bad, we've created a culture where our opinion is a centerpiece of our worldview and truth. And while I want you to have carefully informed opinions and your perspective matters, I'm glad that there is truth that's established, truth that's been anointed not from one man but from 40 authors from a a span of 2,000 years. God's word is true in every place, in every generation, among every people. It's reliable. It's anointed. The Spirit's breathed on it. We can count on it. Here's a couple of scriptures that you've heard before. 2 Timothy 3.16, which was actually talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament had not even been established. So it's saying all scripture in this is inspired by God. It's breathed upon by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. The word of God has a corrective quality to our lives. Can I just tell you that because I read the Bible every day, on a regular basis, the Holy Spirit's correcting me. He's correcting me. My attitudes, my choice of language, on and on and on. There are, there are many things out of God's love, his word is correcting me. Have you ever carried a Bible around? When I was in high school, I used to carry a Bible with my notebook because my youth pastor did that. And so I did that. And you put the Bible, you put the Bible on your desk and people just change. They look, they look at it differently. They, they're like, whoa, what's going on here? Ever put a Bible? A lot of times I go to restaurants, I take a Bible, put it on there. Hey, what's, what's, what's the book? Are you Christian? There's, there's power in this. There's power to change life. Hebrews 4.12 says this, that the word of God is living. It's not a dead, dormant book. It's an effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the ideas and the thoughts of the heart. If you think something's a good idea, but you can't find it in Scripture, you've been judged by Scripture. Scripture says, no, that's not a good idea. That's not what God said. And I need that. I I don't really make the best decisions just with my limited knowledge and limited wisdom. But the word speaks. The word speaks. And if you have a regular reading of the Bible, and I, I think five days a week, three to five times a week, read the Bible. If you can do seven, go for seven. But but three to five days, read the Bible and digest it. Does that make sense? Don't just let your eyes hit the paper. So I'd rather you read the Bible three times and get something out of it than seven times and be asleep, you know, sleep reading Read the Bible three to five times a week, five minutes a day. You watch what God begins to change your life. God begins to change your life. He'll sharpen you. He'll sharpen you. If you're a student right now, you will be a better student if you read God's word on a regular basis. You might say, well, I don't have time for that. You don't have time not to. If you're drawn towards ideas, if you're drawn towards philosophies, all that is good. I think it's good that we're curious about knowledge, but this is not just knowledge. There's an anointing on this word. This is a directive. This is how God speaks to us as his people. In Luther's day, there was a priest named John Tetzel. And he was preaching in Germany. And he was raising money for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. I've never been there. Do they charge to tour St. Peter's Basilica? Has anyone been there? I'm just curious about that. Okay. They, no? Okay, well. He did this because in exchange for a contribution... He, he would tell people that their relatives 
would move from purgatory into paradise. This kind of financial scheme really preyed upon the poor and the uneducated, which in that culture was virtually every person. Unless you were part of nobility or the clergy, you were, you were poor. So wealth was not distributed. Wealth was just for a few elite, and everybody else was just trying to you know, root, root out an existence. And so when you, when you hear, give money, and with that money, your relative will go to heaven. And that was an evil practice. It was called indulgences. Here's my third point. The Reformation points us to a rejection of church corruption. And in every generation, including ours, prophetic voices need to call out corruption in the church. Because if we don't have purity as the bride of Christ, then we actually hurt people more than we help. Example of this kind of connection of money and the work of the Spirit, we go back to Acts chapter 8, where the disciples Peter and John had introduced the Holy Spirit uh, to the Samaritans, I believe. And in verse 17, it says, And Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And now, here's the part I want you to see. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power too, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. This is an old term that some of you may remember. I didn't even know this term, simonry. This idea that you can use money to attract the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, may your silver be destroyed with you because you thought the gift of God could be obtained with money. May your silver be destroyed with you because you thought the gift of God could be obtained with money. Anytime we begin to attach the free work of God, and that includes healings, financial breakthrough, provision with gifts, we are in danger of practicing simonry here. We're in danger of doing something that grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, I know Christian TV may be a blessing to a lot of you. I haven't watched Christian TV in about 15 years, um, but I did as a kid. I did as a kid because I grew up in a church where a lot of the famous Christian TV people actually came to our church. It was, it was kind of a weird thing. So that's just the only world I knew. But I remember stuff that happened in the 80s and early 90s that is just, just terrible. And it's no different than what John Tetzel did in the early 1500s. And he wasn't the only one. And, and this is Corruption. And the Reformation reminds us that religious institutions and religious leaders are here to serve people, not to take from people. And it's manipulation. When you do things to manipulate people to give money, people should give money to God out of a purity of heart, out of a generous spirit, not trying to earn God's favor. That's work-based salvation. And it ticks me off, you can tell. Here's number four, as we're just moving quickly now. Clarification of the sacraments. And Protestants generally believe that the sacraments are communion and water baptism instead of all seven. Now, I happen to think that some of the sacraments that the Catholic Church has are good sacraments. Like, and we actually have, have, our elders have 
declared marriage a sacrament now, which is something the Roman Catholics have continuously done. A sacrament is supposed to be something that Jesus instituted and Jesus practiced. An example of this is 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, verse 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord, this is Paul writing, what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. So Jesus did it. He gave thanks, broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, there's a whole lot I'd love to teach you on right now. I've taught on the Lord's Supper before. But the point I wanted you to see here is that Jesus instituted communion and Jesus participated in communion. Jesus also instituted water baptism and Jesus participated in water baptism. So under the Protestant Reformation, there's been a simplification of the sacraments as biblically centered people. Here's the last thing that I want you to be aware of is the fifth I'm sure, I'm certain there's more, but these are just ways I'm organizing our thoughts today. The the fifth benefit of the Reformation is the priesthood of the believer. Now you have direct access to the throne of God. You don't have to go through any human priest. Now there's times that that's a good thing to do. And confession may be something that, that as Protestants we need to include more and and, and some of the people I'm spending time with today, confession is more part of, of their spiritual practice. But Hebrews chapter 4, you'll have to correct that on your notes. It says 14. But Hebrews chapter 4, hope that doesn't mess up you, you version people. I don't think there is a chapter 14. Um, it says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But here's an important qualifying point. But one who has been tested in every way as we, yet without sin. Jesus is the only priest without sin. Therefore, because of that, because of Jesus, let us approach the throne of God with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. This is awesome. I'm so glad. I love getting together with church. I love getting together with the discipleship groups I'm part of. But anytime I need the grace and mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus, which I need it quite a bit, it's there for me. I don't have to go to the church. I don't have to find the priest. I don't have to go to the confessional booth. I've got straight, I have because of Jesus, because of his sinless life, because he is a high priest, I have direct access to the throne of God. That's why your car can be sanctified and holy as a place where you connect to God, even in Nashville traffic, right? Yeah, you can find a place around your home. Your cubicle or your office can be sanctified for the purposes of God because anytime you need the presence of God, you have full access. Anytime you need that grace and mercy from God, you don't have to wait till the next Sunday. You don't have to wait until the next priest or the next prophet or the next evangelist comes through town. If you need healing, you don't have to wait. You can ask God for healing. And yes, he uses still confession and he uses the laying on of hands but we have access to the throne of God anytime because every believer is a priest. Every believer 
has access to the presence of God. Let's stand together. Let's stand together and just... My, my intention today was to let the word of God wash over you, to let these scriptures remind you that as... I'm a little surprised that culture hasn't, hasn't recognized the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation more clearly, but that could change in the next nine days. And if it does... I want you to see that for many of you, for this church, we're part of the Protestant Reformation, and it's a Reformation that's still continuing. We're brothers and sisters with our, our Roman Catholic and our Eastern Orthodox, and even our Coptic brothers and sisters. I believe that. I believe that. I, I believe that with all my heart. But we, we have distinctions, and our distinctions is our authority comes from God's Word. We're people that do not live a work-based salvation. We're fully dependent upon the grace of our God. This is for all Protestants. We're people who, who believe in the priesthood of believer, that every Christian gets to participate. There's not a special elite clergy. There's not a, there's not a separation in the sense that one, any other person is more special than the other. Every single person has access to the throne of God. So, Father, we thank you for this faith you've given us. We thank you for this. And Lord, I just pray right now. What I'm praying is that, that some of the words shared today would stir truth in you. The Lord wants to stir truth for you. Some of you, this is stuff you've known about in the past, but you just don't even think about it anymore. The Lord wants you to start thinking about theology again. The Lord wants you to start thinking about the church again. You're thinking too much about football. You're thinking too much about the next vacation. I didn't say those things were wrong, but if it's, that's what you're meditating on, the Lord says be a man or woman of God and start thinking about the things of the Lord. And no more milk, guys. It's time for some of you, some of you to move to the meat and, and, and to think more deeply about the things of God. Think more deeply, to, to be diligent in your call, to be counted worthy of the calling so that you're, you're, you're a workman who knows how to handle the truth. You're, you're, you're someone who's working at being a man of God. You're developing a prayer, prayer life. You're a woman of God and, and you're using your gifts you're using your gifts to speak God's word. You're using your gifts to share God's word as a woman of God. Lord, we just pray that, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for someone like John Wycliffe and John Huss, Martin Luther, God. Lord, Huss himself who, who died for the truth of your word. And Lord, let them, we, we, don't, we don't worship them in the least. That would be idolatry. But God, we thank you that their lives are inspirations to us inspirations to us. So Lord, we praise you and we thank you for what you've